You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. Hi, Ross. Hi, Bob. How are you? I can't complain. How are you doing? I could complain, but what would be the point? So, uh, so true. I certainly wouldn't be interested in your problems. Um, let me introduce this. I'm Robert Wright. This is The Right Show, available on both streaming video and via audio podcast. You are Ross Douthat, famous New York Times columnist. So famous. So famous. What's it like? Can't go to the shopping mall? Oh, you can't go to those anyway these days. Never mind. Um, the uh, But very well-known uh, conservative thinker, author of a number of books, uh, a book about Pope Francis, and... The book we're going to discuss today, which is, I'm uh, getting my copy out on my smartphone, The Decadent Society, How We Became the Victims of Our Own Success. Um, before we start, maybe we should say that we are recording this on June 3rd. I mean, we may have occasion to make reference to current events, conceivably, and yeah. at the rate at which things are moving these days, we should probably make it clear at the outset that that's when we're recording this. It probably won't go up for uh, another week or so, I would guess. But he, Yes, I think I have found that um, many of my interviews about this book and otherwise have been have had parts of them overtaken by events mm-hmm. in the last few months. So. Well, the, the book itself got out not very far ahead of the pandemic, right? Not very far ahead of the lockdown? Yeah, I had about three weeks of, or two two to three weeks of mm-hmm. book tour, um, during which time I may have contracted the coronavirus myself. Um, have you been so tested? I, I, got, I had a negative test, um, but my whole family got sick with mm. something that, if it wasn't the coronavirus, was unlike, um, was mm. very like the coronavirus and unlike anything we'd had mm. before. So we're still we're going to get antibody tests at some point. Um, but, yeah, I got in. I snuck the book in just before, you know, decadence started to get a little bit unsettled, I guess you could say. Well, I was going to say, I mean, uh, the, the the current, I guess, what seems like ferment to some people certainly change might seem at odds with uh a simplistic rendition of your thesis. I mean, your thesis might be caricatured, and I know you you would say this isn't what your thesis is, but it could be caricatured as saying not much of anything is happening. Now, I know that's not what you mean, but uh, you do emphasize stagnation, and 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 right yep. now we don't seem to be in a period of stagnation. So, why don't you start out by dispelling the misconception, which I'm sure you think it is that uh, that the current kind of rate of social and political activity is at odds with your thesis. And you might, you might start earlier by telling people what you mean by decadence. Cause it's not exactly the, either the dictionary definition or the kind of vaguer connotative jumble that I carried around in my own head, uh, in association with the word. Yeah. It's a, probably a slightly different connotative jumble, but basically I'm using it to mean, stagnation, sclerosis, and repetition at a really high level of wealth and civilizational development. Um, so the book basically argues that over the last two to three generations, starting sometime around the moon landing, um, which is where I, where I begin the book conveniently, 
um, the developed world, Western Europe, the U.S., to some extent the Pacific Rim, entered into a period of economic deceleration, um, of sort of slowdown in technological change, where technological change that used to be sort of broad spectrum became concentrated more and more just in Silicon Valley, a period of sort of political stalemate and gridlock. That's probably the least controversial part of my thesis. Um, a period of demographic decline, aging, people having fewer babies, society getting older, which feeds back into other forms of sort of stagnation, I would argue. And finally, this this is the hardest to prove, but this kind of period of cultural recycling and repetition where you have the same intellectual arguments, the same political coalitions, and the same superhero movies and, you know, the Star Wars movies just remake themselves over and over again. So that's mm -hmm. the big picture account. Um, and it's compatible with, you know, really important events happening in which obviously the mm -hmm. pandemic is and probably the, the protests, um, that are going on as we speak are as well. Um, and, and one of the, in a way, part of the impetus for the book was, having lived through as an adult a series of dramatic moments, starting with 9-11, then the financial crisis, then even the election of Donald Trump. After all of those moments, there was this narrative that, you know, the world will never be the same. Everything has changed. And each time, I think, the sort of somewhat stagnant state of Western civilization reasserted itself. So I, it's not entirely you know, it's it's totally possible, and in fact, the book spends a certain amount of time entertaining these possibilities that something like a global pandemic could come along and genuinely put an end to decadence. It is it's possible that you know my book can be like the Norman Angel book, where right before World War One, where he said there there aren't going to be any wars anymore, and then then there was. Uh, I, actually, I don't think he put his thesis quite that strongly, but no. certainly his timing was not his, optimal. His timing was not optimal, and maybe I'm coming in. Uh, maybe I'm just looking backward and describing – maybe the book just describes a 40- to 50-year period that's now ending in chaos and revolution. Um, but I'm I'm skeptical. I think probably we will come through this particular moment and things will restabilize mm -hmm. and decadence will reassert itself. But we'll find out. <laughs> okay. So um – one of the more controversial parts of your thesis has to do with technological change. Uh, you kind of, uh, you associate yourself, I guess, with Tyler Cowen and others who have argued that really there's, we're in a period of, in a sense, technological stagnation. Um, the, the, and you know, I gotta say, if you would, if you had told me there's a conservative who's gonna make a technology related critique of modern society who's going to express a certain amount of discontent. And we should say you are not happy with this state of affairs. Um, and, and near the end of the book, you, you, you talk about several ways we might exit it if we do, although we, we, we might not. It may be a sustainable decadence. Um, but anyway, if I had heard that there's a, you know, kind of a, like a Burkean conservative, which I guess you'd call yourself, right? Who is unhappy with something related to technology. Well, I'll let the record show that you're kind of, you didn't, you didn't, uh, entirely affirm my characterization of you. What I mean is you're not, you're not like a libertarian conservative, a, a free market fundamentalist conservative who, who, who would, who, who would tend to embrace technological change. You're, 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 you strike me as a kind of conservative who, if, yep. if I heard that Ross Douthat had a technology related critique of society, I would think it's things are moving too fast, right? I, 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 
bring back cats and dogs are living together. Yeah. Bring bring back the good old days. Yeah. So and, and we should say, you know, you're a religious conservative, and 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 in that sense, a traditionalist. Um, so that I, I assume you recognize this as an, in some sense, surprising part of your thesis. <laughs> I yeah, guess. I mean, I think I think that my perspective on some of these issues has changed a bit over the, I guess, fifteen to twenty years now that I've been sort of a writer, a professional writer in public, and had some kind of profile. Um, and you know, I've written a bunch of books that have all been sort of in hindsight, they've all sort of been about decadence, right? I wrote a book about the Ivy League. I wrote a book about the Republican Party, a deeply decadent institution. I wrote a book about um, the American Christianity and my own Catholic Church. And I think over time, I've come to the conclusion that a, that, that, and it, well, that Western society as it's constituted doesn't really have a way back a sort of plausible way back to some kind of organicist, rooted, you know, traditional community, and that we have depleted, you know, a lot of the um, a lot of the material that sort of Burkean conservatives or more even more traditionalist conservatives um, would look to as sort of the grounding for society. And so it's hard to imagine a kind of sort of pastoralist return for Western civilization. Mm-hmm. And at the same time. I also think that those those forces that I think conservatives are interested in conserving or reviving, you know, whether it's an institution like the family or an institution like the Roman Catholic Church, have in modern history tended to revive themselves in sort of creative tension with developments outside themselves, mm-hmm. um, new, sort of new developments, new frontiers, new ideas. So, you know, Catholicism enters into periods of torpor, and then in response to revolutionaries or secularists, it ends up reforming itself and, you know, creating mm-hmm. a new age of missionary zeal or a new age of saints and so on. And I think the same goes for whatever we think of as conservative politics writ large. Um, so I am in a little bit of a I'm in a little bit of a different place from, like, my friend Patrick Deneen, for instance, who wrote a book um, called, you know, How Liberalism Failed that came out a couple of years ago. And there's there's a lot of overlap between our perspectives in the sense that we both sort of have a similar critique of how um, Western liberalism has kind of exhausted itself. But Patrick, and he said this in a review of my book, thinks that I'm too, you know, I'm too progressive in, in a sense. I'm too hopeful in sort of transformations in science and politics and so on um hmm. and maybe not conservative enough and you know that's that's possible but uh, yeah i i've come around i think to a meaning not uh, pessimistic enough or meaning um naively thinking that the source of hope could lie in technological change more the latter more mm-hmm. naively thinking that sort of novelty and the idea of progress um are are you know, sort of necessary parts of any Western revival. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think, you know, I'm enough of a conservative to think that certain kinds of progress are, you know, if not an illusion, something of an illusion. There is sort of a bedrock of human nature that societies return to and sort of, mm-hmm. um, but, but, but I also think that, you know, certainly I think the society we've built depends on change and innovation and mm-hmm. exploration. And if it's run out of ways to change and innovate and explore, I don't think we're going to get 
a sort of, you know, return to traditionalism, I think we're going to get more of what we've had, this sort of stagnation. Like to take, you know, to, to take an example that crops up in, in my book, as it does in a lot of arguments, like if you look at sort of rural America right now, um, you don't, you see in certain ways, you know, you don't see a ton of dynamism and innovation, right, um, in a lot of parts of rural America. Um, but you also don't have in those places a sort of, you know, sturdy bedrock of traditional values. You know, you do, you have some religious parts of America, but, but what you've gotten over the last 20 years as sort of, as mm-hmm. sort of economic, economic progress in certain ways in the U.S. has slowed down is just a kind of, kind of stagnation and despair embodied by the opioid epidemic above mm-hmm. all, which is sort of, that's, that's, I think, my worry that sort of instead of like, you know, a virtuous Burkean community under stagnation, you get the opioid epidemic instead. Yeah. And that, I mean, there are other dimensions of your worry that people will sink into virtual reality and increasingly escape from real reality. And in general, I think there's a whole chapter called Comfortably Numb, isn't there? Or is there yeah. not in, in the book? Yeah. So um, let me. Um, and that is just that part. I mean, I'm skeptical of some of the effects of technology and you know there are whole, yeah there are whole well, chapters I would, in the book I would book. argue that you're more skeptical than you realize actually I mean in a sense I mean I guess I would I would say two things I've always been a skeptic of the idea that technology isn't moving super fast and when I first heard the thesis from Tyler Cowen although I haven't really assessed his argument I haven't like read whatever version of he's put into writing I, I got the sense, just listening to a little of what he said, that he was really undervaluing information technology and its transformative potential in general. He just thought of technology as like big machines, kind of, to oversimplify it a bit. And I, you know, if I were like writing a review of your book and trying to sound as clever as I could, which is the whole point of writing reviews, um, you know, I would, I would accuse you of, of, of two things like, underestimating the 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 significance of the the current change in information technology but but more than that i would argue that um the things you're you're most dissatisfied about many things you're most dissatisfied about and that you see as characterizing decadent society are arguably products of information technology moving really fast I mean, the obvious example is virtual reality. You're, 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 you know, kind of like virtual sex replacing real sex and so on. You're not, that's one example of something you're not happy about that is a result of pretty recent technological change. Um, so that, that would be my, my two pronged, uh, my two pronged critique. I, I want to say it's a great book. It's, there's a ton of interesting ideas. And yeah, I mean, this could have been three books. There's so many interesting ideas. I mean, don't, I, I would just advise you as somebody older, older than you, Ross, pace yourself <laughs> you know <laughs> the time will come when you don't have any new ideas when every book of yours will be by your own definition decadent repetitive you know <laughs> but that's right but that's those are the books that really sell because that's well, you know once it, once people can work that way people, people get familiar with you and you know and and are happy to to know what's coming but yes i think that's sort of a you could argue it's a tension in my argument um i think it's sort of it in a sense, I'm arguing that the technological changes we've had had are kind of the exception that has helped confirm the larger rule, right? So the argument is not that there has been no progress in information technology. Obviously, there's been rapid transformative progress, but that progress has, it's not just as 
Cowan has argued, I think rightly, that it's been a, a more monodimensional kind of progress than you got like over the course of the Industrial Revolution. It's also that that progress tends to make other forms of progress, not just technological, but political, um, aesthetic, intellectual, less likely by by at least so far by what the internet incentivizes, right? So, and, yeah. and again, this is where, you know, the, the ongoing protests are raising questions about that argument. The book argues that, um, that, you know, online engagement with politics tends to be a poor substitute for real world engagement with politics. And so people treat politics as itself a kind of virtual reality that's all about, you know, liking and dragging and clicking and so on and aren't doing the hard work of, of sort of organizing and building the political infrastructure that that changes political realities. Now, maybe that's happening right now, even as we speak. But I think the last, I think there's been, since the rise of the internet, there's been a kind of symbiosis between how the internet encourages us to engage with politics and how little actually changes in our politics, which I do think mm-hmm. very little has, has changed. Well, yeah, I'd say not enough. I mean, I have my own view of the kind of radical political change that's needed. Uh, and it, I mean, this, this is my argument in my book, non-zero, but it has to do with the, the evolution of robust, uh, international governance and, and, and so on. Um, but, uh, I, I agree that politics is not making necessary adaptations. We're probably agreed on that, but, but, but in a way, what you're saying is, the adaptations aren't even being forced upon us, right? I mean, I, I see really important technological change, uh, but not only indicating the direction in which governance should go, but also making our own democracy obsolete. It, I, I mean, it, one reason it's so dysfunctional is because it was designed for different information technology, you know? And uh, we don't need to get into that, but um, am I right in thinking that you, you think both the politics doesn't seem to be headed anywhere interesting and that perhaps more alarmingly change is not really being forced upon it in any coherent identifiable way does that make sense yes i i think that i think that there is a lot of obsolescence in our government in in our political system that is much harder to deal with than obsolescence in the past that sort of the the normal mechanisms of political a political change, um, both sort of the basic win an election and enact your agenda and the more sweeping pass a constitutional amendment have all sort of fallen into abeyance for a lot of, a lot of different reasons. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, and I think most people, many people would agree with that, especially maybe more on the left than on the right. Um, but then at the same time, yeah, I'm skeptical that the the forces that people think are going to force us to change will actually force us to change. I think there is more stability in our sort of position as an old, wealthy society. And in the case of the U.S., an old, wealthy society that still has, you know, a sort of hemisphere unto itself than people who expect, like, climate change to force transformation mm-hmm. expect, right? So I'm I'm skeptical that in 50 years we will say, well, you know, we had a system that, that couldn't last in 2020, and then this cascade of external events came along, and sure enough, it didn't last. Um, mm-hmm. But that is definitely, and again, especially thank now with the pandemic and everything else, that's, that's a, more con- a more contrarian perspective, certainly, I think. Okay. The, um, so let me 
let me say what I would say in elaboration about the technological dimension of your argument. Uh, I mean, I, we could spend a lot of time on that because it's a very interesting subject. But let me kind of get out the gist of what I would what I would say and just just let you respond to it. Um, so there's a uh, there's a part of your book when you say I, I guess the 30th anniversary, like some kind of uh, update of I, I'm so see part of the thing is you are so in touch with culture and I'm not. So the cultural part of your argument and it is an important argument to you that culture isn't moving anywhere interesting. I am totally at sea and ill-equipped to critique that. So I cede all that ground. I mean, all I all I feel uh, uh, uh you know, qualified to argue about is, is, is the political and social ramifications of, of technological change. But I am familiar with the movie Back to the Future. I can say that. And apparently there was some sequel to it that came out 30 years later. Is that, is that the deal? And, and what you say is. The sequel was set. The sequel came out quite close to Back to the Future. It was set 30 years in the future. So Back to the Future goes back from 85 to the 50s. And the sequel goes forward from '85 to our I own see. to our own era. So, but but the question you raise, if I recall correctly, is like, when was there more change between 1955 and 1985, or between 1985 and 2015? Right. right? And the, the case I would make is is that the answer is is B. I mean, and uh, so for starters, I mean. Well, well, we can actually put this in the context of movies. Have you ever seen a movie where you go, well, that plot line just wouldn't hold up because now we've got this technology and he would be able to tell her that. He would be able to notify her of that or he would be able to get this information. Yes. The horror well, movie, the horror movie in the age of the cell phone has a, has a serious well, plot. And, and not just the cell phone. What I would argue is that between 1955 and 1985, I, it's hard for me to think of such Problems like every every plot in 1955, uh, so far as interpersonal technology goes, I think would kind of hold up. You got to get to a physical place to use a telephone. If you want some information, you go have to get it out of a book. That's still pretty much true in '85. Um, whereas now, obviously, cell phones, smart, you can know anything you want right away. There's no such thing as ignorance in a certain sense in the modern world. Uh, there, there's no such sense as, you know what I mean though, there's no yeah, such yes. sense, there's no such sense as, as, as a well-known fact you can't get your hands on. Uh, the, the, increasingly there's no such thing as uh, a person, an individual person you can't learn a, a lot about from, regardless of where you are in, in two minutes. Anyway, those, those kinds of, uh, like nobody stops and asks me for directions anymore. That's a big change, you know? Uh, and, and that is something, I miss, you might miss, because it was, in a weird way, it was a source of human community. Somebody stops, you give them directions, you feel good. Well, that too has been replaced by information technology. Anyway, you, you take my point, right, that if you, yes. if you pay attention to information technology, it, it's night and day. I think there's been, uh, you know, and I've only mentioned a few things. So. Yes. But then outside information technology. Right? Well. So if you look at the, I mean, if you look at, so the, the back to the future stuff, um, that, that point that I make in the book comes at the start of the chapter that's on, uh, that is on cultural and, and, intel- and intellectual life and sort of everything from political debates to like right. fashion choices and stuff, stuff that I'm not really qualified to write about either. But, you know, you have to, you have to make some generalizations for the sake of a book. And, I think the that I think the 55 to 85 versus 85 to the present period the contrast is sharpest 
in not in technology, but in fashion, culture, politics, um, sex, race relations, a whole a whole host of things. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so you mm-hmm. know, if you look at if you look at something like just just I mean to take. The, the issue that's in the news right now, the change in the position of African-Americans in this country between 1955 and 1980, that shift compared to the shift between 1990 and 2015, there's no comparison. The shift in the first case is bigger. So that's mm-hmm. and and I think I make the argument that the same is sort of true of other of less, you know, less social justice related areas. It's true in movies and other things. But we, we can leave that aside on technology. I think I wouldn't pick 55 to 85 per se as the period to contrast, but like, you know, let's take, take transportation, right? It takes, it takes the human, the human race 69 years to go from Kitty Hawk to the moon. That's pretty amazing. Mm-hmm. And from 90, and then we, we get the Concorde around the same time and we sort of max out our, um, we we max out our global travel speeds. We get to the highest point in the solar, the furthest point, I should say, in the solar system that human beings have reached. And then I think 1970 to 2020 is a letdown in that area. The built environment transforms much more dramatically between mm. 1880 and 1960. The you know the urban landscape of today is built in that period, and it's sort of finessed and refitted a bit today. The automobile revolution mm. happens before that period, and so sure. you know antibi- antibiotics, right? But- Life expectancy changes, infant mortality, all of these things happen. So I, I think you're I think you're leaning hard on the area well, that I concede has changed, yeah, right? But, Information but, technology and, and it's a big change. It is but, a big it but is compared a big change. to expectations, you know, well, in the nineteen fifties people were yeah. like, Well, we're gonna have you know, we're obviously gonna have nuclear reactors in our garage. Yeah, but they didn't right? anticipate the things we do have. You you hear all you see almost no one appreciating uh, that before too long, you would have wherever you were in the world, pretty much you could get your hands on any fact instantaneously, for example, um, not to mention the whole increasingly in some some minds creepy um, <clears throat> ability of, you know, the, the kind of ambient AI, whether you want it or not, Google knows what you're doing. And this, by the way, is another thing. You don't well, they thought we'd have robots, though. They thought we'd be able to, like, ask a robot. They didn't anticipate, I think, how small computers would get but like the right. the computer on star trek is it's bigger but it's an ambient ai and the right, communicator imagine- on star trek is sort of like sort of like the iphone now but admittedly that is set 225 years <laughs> there you go in, in the future but it's set after the clone after the uh you know the genetic supermen come along in 20 in 20 in 19 i think the 1990s the star trek thought we would have a, a intra-species war effectively between human beings and genetic supermen in the 1990s. Where's my intra-human war, Bob? I was uh, promised. Give it time. I mean, Bill Gates <laughs> said we tend to uh, underestimate long-term change and overestimate near-term change. And, and I think, you know, you can see the seeds of crazy stuff that's going to be hard to deal with, that, yes. that's alarming and so on. And, and I would say, speaking of the kind of ambient AI, another thing you don't like is the kind of de facto surveillance, not surveillance state, but just the surveillance environment where some machine out there knows a lot about you. And, and also, which, uh, you know, a, a panopticon that consists of other people knowing a lot about you and so on. And all that is is information technology 
um, yes. driven. I mean, I, I guess what I'd say broadly to your point is, of course, I'm emphasizing information. We're in the information age. I mean, there was an industrial revolution. Our processing of matter and energy was transformed. Mm-hmm. That slowly played out. Uh, that, you know, if you want to think of society as a giant superorganism, that was like the muscles of the superorganism or the, you know, the everything below the head getting transformed. The information age is more like the stuff above the head, uh, which many people would say is no less important, I guess. Right. But shouldn't that, I mean, shouldn't this, so let me say two things. First, I think it is totally possible that the, the point you made about seeds being planted right now is correct, right? Mm-hmm. And that, you know, the, what I'm describing as decadence is a kind of lull or trough in which the, you know, the developments that really are going to change society dramatically are being pioneered and will, you know, will, will show up and in 2045 or 2070 will say, well, things slowed down a bit technologically, you know, between 1999 and 2017, but, um, you know, the CRISPR technology being pioneered at that point, you know, just it came of age 40 years later mm-hmm. and, and that was, that was radically transformative. I think that's totally possible. And I'm not, you know, the book spends, as you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. latter portions are like spinning out various scenarios. It doesn't offer yeah. a single prophecy for the future. It sort of emphasizes this sort of sustainable decadent stuff because I thought that was my most contrarian take. Right? Yeah. I think, and, From- and, you know, and maybe my wrongest. We'll find out. But the other, but then, yeah, I mean, I guess on the question of what has changed to date, um, the, you know, one, I do think there are ways in which the, the sort of the, you know, if you think of this as like, well, we're transforming the brain, but then what if transforming the brain then makes the muscles atrophy, right? Like that's, that's sort of, I think in part, like with the surveillance technology or something, right? Like, yes, that's, that is a technological breakthrough. And we have, but the question is, are we using that to further, you know, breakthroughs or creativity in other areas, or are we using it to just sort of maintain a kind of social order that, you know, well, again, maybe is, maybe is falling apart even as we speak. But this is sort of, you know, this is sort yeah. of brought to its sharpest point in, in, in anxieties about the kind of states that, that China is building, right? That sort of it's, you know, it is a authoritarian state that's using surveillance technology to become more effectively totalitarian than the totalitarianisms of the 20th, 20th century to do mm-hmm. things that the, the Stasi and the KGB could never manage. And, you know, maybe that will lead to other forms of technological progress, or maybe it means that sort of something like the stagnation of the Soviet Union could have continued <laughs> for another 50 years if they'd had better surveillance technology or something. That's that that's sort of the, that's one of the concerns, I think. Yeah. Yeah. And if I seem to be dwelling unduly on the technology, I think that's partly because I'm more of a technological determinist than you are to begin with. I see that more as the kind of driving force in um, social and political change. Um, I mean, do you do you feel you know like I just just from your own perspective, I I I know that we don't we don't agree on this exactly, but do you, ha, has your view changed since non-zero over? Has the last when did non-zero come out? That came out uh, in, twenty years ago, right? So I mean, at that point in time, I certainly was a conservative. I was probably in college or something, but I was certainly a conservative who was more worried about technology changing too quickly than too slowly. I was worried yeah. about our post-human future and, you know, artificial wombs and basically, 
um, all the things you would expect a social conservative to worry about. And I've ended up worrying about those less because I do, I feel like, I feel like the, the world, the sort of, the the horizons that seem to be open in the 1990s have sort of receded from us a bit. Mm-hmm. Do you do you feel that at all? Well, I feel. I mean, the the what I consider the most important part of my argument uh, I haven't abandoned, which is that uh, technology is creating more and more non-zero sum games among nations, often right. common threats. And if they don't get together and solve things like uh, biological weapons, uh, the threat of, of warfare in space, which could trigger a nuclear war, environmental problems, pandemics. I mean, I named all this stuff and, and argued that if we don't get more cooperative in a, in a somewhat institutionalized way, which is to say some degree of global governance, we are in trouble. I think that's not that hard a thesis to defend right now. Personally, there, there are other parts of, of uh, my book where uh, that I have to qualify more. Not, not, not a ton. I, I probably sound a little too facile in my hopes that, um, at least now I do, in my hopes that information technology would force uh, a government like China's to choose uh, between granting economic and some degree of political liberty, or just stagnating economically that that was kind of my my feeling and if that's going to be the case it's going to take a longer time to play out but but my um no the the i i i i think uh, unfortunately i would say my um if my thesis has been substantiated has been in a negative way we haven't really mm-hmm. you know for for you know we haven't made much progress on the global governance front these threats, the only one that's rooted said lately is pandemic, but I think I could argue that these threats are closer than, than they were then. That, that's, that's that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, what I'd add is that now I think more, and this maybe should, can take us toward kind of the end of your book, but I would say more than I did then, I would emphasize that I think it's going to take not just a revolution in governance, but a revolution in moral outlook, and you could even say a, a spiritual revolution in the sense that Clearly a big impediment to, to getting where I'd like us to go is kind of what you could call the psychology of tribalism manifest in American political polarization, in, in growing tensions with China, whatever. I would say that, you know, in both cases, we're not really seeing people naturally don't see things clearly. They do get tribalistic. And I think if we don't get better at more aware of the cognitive biases that drive that, we'll be in trouble. Um, now you, bring religion and spirituality in and, and, and close by asking the question of what role uh, religion will play or can play, you know, if there is renaissance. You lay out these various scenarios. You know, there can be continued manageable decadence. There can be catastrophe, climate change, or various others. There can be renaissance. And, and I guess um, I, I would ask you, uh, don't you kind of in your heart – I mean, you, you, you make your, you're presenting the argument not to fellow Christians. You, you mean the argument to hold up to just sheer intellectual scrutiny. You're not appealing to anyone's faith. So I had the suspicion that in your own mind, Renaissance, and there are hints of this in the book, but that in your own mind, that Renaissance is going to have to involve a, 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 a religious dimension, maybe more than you're entirely explicit about. Does that make sense? I mean, that's probably true. I've written other books about religion that are sort of more yeah. explicit, probably, on that point. Um, and it's not a, you know, the the book does argue that any renaissance would have to have a strong religious dimension. Um, okay. 
That so that but, is your that is your your view. I think it's well. I mean, I think what I say at some point is that is that just as decadence is entangled, right? It's my part of my argument is it's this intensely entangled phenomenon where you have feedback loops between economic deceleration, the technological stuff we've been talking about, and political sclerosis, people not having kids, um, and and that they, you know, it's a tangle. So you can't just say, ah, the problem is, you know, neoliberalism, that, you know, neoliberalism destroyed the economy or something. You can't just say, oh, it's polarization, right? I mean, I've, I've, you know, had arguments with Ezra Klein, who has a book about polarization, right, about, you know, how much, how much of our political problems can be reduced to just that. So it's hard, it's hard. I think it's a sort of somewhat irreducible problem where everything is happening together. And then Renaissance is a somewhat mysterious phenomenon that when it happens is similarly entangled, right? So you could get, you know, to speculate, you could get a technological change that in turn inspires a lot of religious change, right? This happened mm-hmm. basically with the printing press, you know, from a Catholic perspective, for better or worse, right? But, um, <laughs> but, but similarly, right? Like, you know, if you went, if you went a little further into virtual reality, which is obviously something I'm somewhat worried about, maybe that provokes a kind of moral awakening or transformation where, you know, the great religions start to think about, you know, well, what does, what does ethics mean? You know, how do you, how do human, how are human beings supposed to relate to this new technology so that it doesn't just sort of capture and dehumanize them? And so maybe you have technology driving religious change or maybe it's through a debate about biotechnology or or something or something else or maybe it's that a technological change changes the social landscape in ways that sort of change how people relate to each other and religious bodies interact with that mm-hmm. I, so i think it's an in, it's an interactive phenomenon where it's not just as simple as uh, you know, you need a, you need a, a new prophet, or you know, a new from a Catholic perspective, a new Saint Francis or Saint Dominic. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, I mean, I'm I'm a religious person, and I think that the that a big part of the exhaustion I'm describing is a sense of sort of a sense of futility. I think that people feel about having a coherent picture of what human beings are and how they relate to the universe. Right? I, I feel like we sort of. Western civilization sort of tried to go beyond Christianity in various ways, um, sort of Marxist, fascist in certain ways. Um, I mean, maybe that's going backwards. As you, mean, of, you mean beyond it in the sense, in, in, it, in the sense of having different views of underlying views of human nature, or different in the sense of, conceptions in, of teleology, or or what? All all of that in the sense of of looking for a comprehensive world picture that wasn't Christianity. Mm -hmm. I think certainly that's what Marxism was for the people sort of most under its sway. It was a theory of history and morality and, yeah, teleology. Um, And people weren't happy with where those attempts ended up. And so there was this brief Christian revival, I think, in the West that I talked about in my book about Christianity, Bad Religion, and then that sort of fell apart in the 60s and 70s. And since then, we've had this sort of mixture of, um, you know, sort of a certain amount of scientific materialism in certain parts of the intelligentsia joined to a certain kind of liberal idealism that doesn't really know what its idealism is quite grounded in. Um, a certain amount of new age spirituality that's very interested in experience, but hasn't really translated that into you know, a sort of a theology or metaphysics of what that experience means. And so we're, I think, I think all of that is part of what I'm describing as decadence. And I think a society in that position is probably looking for 
either a new synthesis or a new set of competing syntheses that make people feel like they know, you know, they know what the meaning of life is. Um, and, and so I'm interested in things that, that seem to offer that, not just in my own, out of mm-hmm. my own faith, but also, you know, I write a bit in the book about sort of pantheism and paganism and whether those sort of stirrings could develop into something. I'm, you know, I'm interested. I, I was interested yeah. in your book about Buddhism, but it's, I don't think anybody is, is there yet? I'm interested in Islam, right? Like the the sort no, you, of no, you you are you are commendably eclectic in the book. I mean, I mean, I mean, when you when you run through these Renaissance scenarios, you 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 know you 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 discuss various religions that, in some cases, however improbable it may seem, could wind up being part of a, a, a Renaissance, even in in the in the West, and 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 you spend a a, a lot of time on the possibility that. Um, Africa could make a big cultural contribution to a Renaissance, uh, all of which makes it an interesting book. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I think the I think Africa and China are in different ways the really interesting religious ground of the 21st century because <laughs> Africa Africa is one where the people are, <laughs> where the young people are, which makes a big difference, and it's a place of sort of intense. Christian growth that isn't happening anywhere else, and also a sort of growing, growing and potent Islam that's in conflict with Christianity. And then China is, China is a little bit, you know, it's a little bit like ancient Rome. You don't want to push these comparisons too far, but it's sort of an empire that whose prevailing ethos, you know, the ruling class doesn't completely believe in anymore. And it's sort of, you know, going through the motions of Marxist-Leninism, the way the, you know, Roman emperors went through the motions of the auguries or something. And then you have underneath a lot of growth of Christianity, other other faiths too, sort of stirring or reviving. And, you know, it's just it's just interesting, like what 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 will be the worldview of the Chinese elite in 75 years is to me a really interesting question, I think. Well, you also think there's a comparison to be made between us and Rome, right? I mean, sure. Everybody reached the Roman comparison is it's a you know it's a crutch, but it's it's a crutch for a reason. It fits right, but, very neatly under everybody's shoulder. Sure, but I mean, you, it, it, you, you're not just suggesting that there is a, a comparable prospect of decline. You also um, you, you refer to this view. That Rome had to be saved by something fundamentally new, in this case, Christianity, right? Uh, and that, uh, it'll take something comparably novel, uh, if not necessarily the same thing in this case. Yes. I mean, I think, so there's a sort of narrower, ver- or there's a, a less, more and less over the top version of that, right? So the less over the top version is just, I think, the, the observation that Rome had its own decadence that persisted for a long time. Um, I think it's reasonable to think of the zone from, you know, the first and se- first and second century Rome through the fall of the Roman Empire in the West as a period of decadence punctuated by attempts at revival and revitalization. And one of the revitalizing forces, notwithstanding Edmund Gibbon's claim that, that it was, you know, it was the Christian's fault that Rome fell, was Christ, was Christianity. And that Christianity didn't save the Roman Empire as an institu- as the institution that Augustus Caesar built, but it saved four Roman forms in different ways in the West mm-hmm. and in Byzantium 
in ways that lasted for hundreds or thousands of years and are still with us today to some extent. And so you can see, I think you can see ways in which that could happen with not necessarily Christianity, some other new emergent faith in, in the U.S. context. That's that, But then the more over-the-top version, I guess, is the point that, you know, what people in Rome felt like they had, which was a world-spanning empire, we actually have, right? We really have filled the earth and subdued it. And hanging over us, therefore, is this question, part of which you were getting at talking about non-zero, right, of like, can we figure out how to work together before our technologies or, you know, some natural disaster destroys us, right? Mm -hmm. That's sort of one question. But then the other question is, and I, I think it's ultimately, I mean, they're related questions, but I think it's the more important question is, is there anywhere else to go? Because I feel like if we're stuck here, long term, then human nature being what it is, I'm sort of betting against the optimistic <laughs> thesis. I'm betting that I'm betting that things, you know, that we're sort of you hang on for a while and then things fall apart. And so from a religious perspective, you know, there's a big universe out there. We're not sure what it's there for. Is it decoration? Are we supposed to explore it? I don't know. But that's a question. That's like a question that really confronts us now in a way it hasn't ever confronted us before. Yeah, you, you talk about Space travel, uh, quite a bit near, near, near the end, uh, I guess. The, and you also bring up this idea of the, um, the, it's sometimes described as the great filter. There are other, other people have noted, um, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but the basic idea is like, why haven't we heard from more aliens? Right. If we assume that, <laughs> if, if, yes. if we assume that evolution, we know more than we know that there are more and more inhabitable planets. We discover that all the time. There, there apparently there's a ton of them in the universe. Uh, we, I think there's good reason to believe that if evolution got started on a, on a, on a, uh, a congenial planet, it, it would stand a decent chance of producing an intelligent species. And we've seen that once technological evolution gets going, it, at, right. at one rate or another, you would agree, tends to move forward. And so the question is, well, why haven't they, why haven't we heard from more of these people? Uh, and you go through the, the, and of course the answer may be a premonition of our future. We may, right. we may, and my own preferred version of the answer, of course, is, well, they get to this point, they're on the verge of a global community, but that takes a revolution in governance and morality, arguably mm -hmm. spirituality, and it's just too challenging. And, and they blow the place up or something, or they, they keep yep. setting themselves back epically. Um, but that's a dark, that's a pretty dark view for your thesis in the sense that it implies that, you know, it's like the, yeah. see, I'm gonna, I'm gonna act decadent and I'm gonna cite the, the Avengers, right? Where, uh, in the Avengers, the Doctor Strange who sees the future, at some point, you know, they're fighting this supervillain and he says, I've seen, you know, 1,232,000 possible futures and there's only one in which we win, right? Right. And, and that's, I think, I mean, that's, that's the scary prospect mm -hmm. for, I mean, for both of us, but certainly for the, the thesis, you know, the arguments of your, of your work, right, is that the odds against that revolution in governance and consciousness are like one million or what, well, given the scale of the universe, maybe they're one yeah. billion, one trillion to one, which, which is, you know. It depends on what assumptions you make, but, but yeah, no, there's a dark version of it. And, um, but, but here's a related question. I mean, first of all, 
you know, you don't mention, you know, on the one hand, your book, notwithstanding the, the arguments about technology not moving as fast as some people think, it is in some ways futuristic, as I suggested. Uh, its backdrop is your, uh, in a certain, among many backdrops, perhaps, your, your Christianity. You don't mention one of the most futuristic Catholic theologians I'm aware of, Pierre Teilhard de Chardin, who, 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 who figures right into this. He thought, he was more confident than, than we sounded in the last five minutes. He thought humankind was being drawn together by information technology. He's talking about this like a hundred years ago, pretty much. And he's, it's a very prescient view in that sense. He, he sees like a global nervous system and he imagines it drawing people together in love. Uh, and he considered that a very Christian view. You don't, um, you, are, are you, are you're not a Teilhard guy? I take it. I mean, I, I enjoy, I enjoy a lot of that sort of just pre-Vatican II, um, sort of. <laughs> this has a dismissive guy. sound, Ross. Go it's, ahead. Not, it's not, it's not dismissive. <laughs> I mean, I think, I find Chardin very, I mean, one, you know, there's some issues of heresy that we don't need to get into, but, um, <laughs> but two, there's sort of a vagueness, right, that I think comes into a lot of these sort of, you know, revolution and consciousness ideas, um, that, so, and I guess this is sort of where there is sort of a, you know, I have some theological presuppositions that are sort of, I mean, I, I think there's a little more Buddhism, maybe, maybe in I, Teilhard in, in than there is in, in me. Um, and I, I tend to, I tend to assume that there is, you know, on this side of eternity, there are sort of some of what you're describing as tribalism and human nature is just ineradicable without also eradicating things that are good about human nature, that there's sort of some package deals built in and that mm-hmm. a lot of the sort of global supermind stuff assumes a loss of human personality along the way. That's a little bit too much like the, you know, the it in Madeline Lengel's wrinkle in time or something. That's sort of an extreme example. Um, and so I'm more drawn, I think, to images of the future. I think this is probably the appeal of certain kinds of mid-century science fiction where, you know, you have new frontiers and, and new, new places to go. And it's the same, but it's still human beings doing it. It's not a sort of transformed species because I worry about what's lost in the transformation, I guess. And that's probably what, where I resist Chardin and where I mm-hmm. resist maybe my misunderstanding of some Buddhist Buddhist ideas and theology, the sort of disappearance of self and personality seems to me something that I'm not I'm not all in for. Yeah, that's more a theoretical than a practical concern, I'd say, given the fact that I still haven't met anybody who I thought had actually attained enlightenment. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, yes. Uh, But if but if Chardin is right, I mean, there is some, you know, the vision, the vision does have some elements of that. It, it does. I, I mean, think. he certainly, on the other hand, I mean, certainly, I, I think, first of all, he addresses, I think, the concern that, you know, you, the, the, the identity of the cell is lost in the organism. And then there's the fact that he, you know, he's very, he has, as they say, a Christology, I guess. You know, he, yep. he, he it's certainly in the end, he's seeing it as compatible with um, Christianity. I mean, there's one other Christianity question, which is, uh, maybe I have a naive view of uh, Christian belief, but the way you're exploring these possible future spaces, you know, uh, seems to me like the kind of thing that 
could only be done um, or would be more likely to be done earnestly by somebody who's not a Christian. Because as I understand Christianity, there's not as much doubt as, you know, as you seem to have about where things are headed. Now, maybe that's a pretty, like I was brought up Southern Baptist. That may be a pretty old fashioned, uh, you know, um, Christianity I'm referring to. But you take my point, right? I mean, uh, there is a, there's supposed to yeah. be a second, isn't there supposed to be a second coming? Let me just put there, it that there simply. There is definitely supposed to be a second okay. coming. Yes. Thank you. Um, and, and some of the analysis I'm doing is probably trying to stand outside a little bit my own theological assumptions. Like the, the reality is, yeah, like to take our, the pessimistic considerations we were just discussing, right? Like I, as a Christian, I, I think, I think we beat the odds, right? I don't think, I don't think we just get annihilated and the universe goes on and nothing comes of it. I think the human drama is, if not the central drama, one of the central dramas of the universe. Maybe there are other species for whom Christ needed to come and die on other planets, but certainly, certainly we're close, we're as close to the center as anybody. And that means that, yeah, I don't think there's just a great filter that will swallow us up. I'm entertaining that idea as a possibility that a reasonable non-Christian could entertain. Mm-hmm. But my fundamental belief is, my fundamental belief is either the second coming happens in some, you know, as some end point of some kind of decadence or turmoil on our planet, or it's in some distant future and we have a larger destiny in the stars. Those are my two those okay. are my two possibilities as speaking speaking as a believer. But in your heart, you have more optimism than might be evident in a book. Not that that's disingenuous. It's just because you were you felt a book should be an, an argument and not not an expression of faith. Well, and there's also you know you can say I, I have a fundamental optimism about human destiny, mm-hmm. but that if you told me, well, Western civilization will be sunk in decadence for four hundred years and Christianity will you know become a sort of minority persecuted sect for much of that time and then everything will you know and then the west will collapse and the christianity of the future will emerge from other places and the church in north america will be forgotten you know that's that's a possibility christ said the you know the gates of hell are not supposed to prevail against the church but they could prevail against the church in southern connecticut that's 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 allowed within christian okay. cosmology okay so um just final sci-fi question, and then I have a kind of a a closing question. Um, the the, uh, the 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 thing about virtual reality and people sinking sinking into a virtual reality, not just by virtue of information technology, but but presumably with the aid of pharmaceuticals and so on, just the, right. the ability to construct a fantasy reality. I've always thought that the the more plausible version of the movie The Matrix isn't the one we saw, but but a version in which people slowly, incrementally choose, you know, not one where r- robots stuff them into these pods, but where right. people choose incrementally to move toward the pod life and finally yep. just, is that, is that, you don't put it like that in the book, but is that your concern? Yeah, I think, I think that's more, one, I think that's more plausible. Um, and yeah, that's, that's my concern. I mean, the, the concern is sort of somewhere in between the um obese people with screens in space future in Wally and Aldous Huxley's Brave New World right mm-hmm. so it's a future where maybe there's some sort of state playing some role in steering people in this direction and this is you know where the sort of surveillance panopticon stuff comes in 
But fundamentally, it's that a culture that's sort of exhausted and hedonistic at the same time and could, yeah, could sort of choose to move ever further in that direction. I mean, I have enough, again, I have enough confidence both in the resilience of the good things in human nature and, as I was just saying, in, you know, the goodness of Almighty God that I don't think you, I think it's, I don't, I'm doubtful that you get stuck in the full dystopia forever but I think there are elements of our of our society that, you know, even from the vantage point of 20 years ago, would clearly have a sort of dystopian element. Okay. Um, that, you know, opioids and porn together, if you had told someone 25 years ago where sort of pharmaceuticals and pornography would sort of take society, I think it would have sounded a bit dystopian. Yeah. Um. So then the, this... Final question. We alluded to to current events early on, and maybe if you feel like it, see, I can imagine. I think I can imagine how you might answer the question. Wait a second. If 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 we are in a period of stagnation, how come? Like I, I you know, I'm glued to CNN, waiting to see what's going to happen tomorrow. At least you know, at this point, June June third. Um, both you know, in terms of the pandemic and in terms of the protests and civil unrest. Um, you know, I, I mean, I think part of your your answer would just be the clarification. I'm not saying a lot of stuff doesn't happen. I'm I'm talking about kind of uh, directional change as opposed to like cycles of repetition and and so on. Um, but but how would you flesh that? Do you have a way of fleshing that out in terms of say the the? Well, it's uh, easier. I think it's easier with the pandemic than with the protests, right? Hmm. I mean, the pandemic hmm. is an external. I mean, it's not external to planet earth but it's sort of an unexpected predictable but unexpected external shock to the system and it's sort of a stress test where we try and figure out um how decadent are we are we sufficiently decadent that when a shock like this comes along we just sort of collapse or um are we less decadent than we thought and we can sort of beat this thing quickly or which is where i think we're ending up are we sort of somewhere in between where we're you know we're not so vulnerable that we're going to get the sort of million dead, you know, Stephen King's The Stand sort of social collapse scenario. But we are decadent enough that, you know, we have you know lots of failure at every level of government that's going to lead us to a place where we just sort of say, well, we can't really beat the virus. We can sort of contain it. And we're just accepting that 100,000 people have died. Another 100,000 people are going to die before we before we get out of this. And then once we get out of this, Maybe things actually go back more to normal than people think um, right right now. In the same way that nine eleven, the financial crisis, and even the election of Trump were less world historical than people thought. So that's that's the argument with with the pandemic. And you know, it remains to be seen. It could be that the pandemic could, could inspire sort of new technological change. And, you know, Mark Andreessen, the Silicon Valley tycoon, wrote a big essay mm -hmm. a few weeks into the crisis saying it's a time to build and we haven't been building enough in America. Our institutions have failed. We need to rebuild them. Maybe that happens. Maybe there is some sort of revitalization out of this shock. But I think it's pretty easy to see how a pandemic could sort of demonstrate the decadence of our institutions offer the promise of change and then have it sort of evaporate. The okay. protests, because they are sort of dramatic political engagement, are less, are, you know, are less decadent. And I have a portion in the book where I sort of say how striking it is that even in the age of Trump, there haven't been that many protests. You know, there hasn't been the kind of urban unrest that a lot of people expected. And that 
to me, sort of confirm this sense of people just engaging with politics through their screens. Mm-hmm. But that's not what's happening as we speak um, in in many, many American cities. And so then the question becomes, well, what, you know, what comes of this? Is it possible to have these kind of protests, have these kind of riots lead to dramatic change one way or another? And that's, again, where I would say maybe the decadence of the system reasserts itself. But but mass protests are themselves, you know, they're they're not decadent. And they sort of they do contradict one of the pieces of analysis I have in the book. Not that that should prevent anybody from, you know, buying and reading it. But they aren't they they're harder to fit into the framework than the pandemic writ large. I think. Although even there, if there were this kind of uh, expression, uh, you know, this kind of uh, adamant political expression, but it turned out that the ideologies being expressed to the extent that they were being articulated at all weren't really new. And, you know, that would apply to people who are, for example, socialists. I assume you would say, well, okay, but it's the same old, it's just recycling. Yeah, I mean, I I think there could be, I think we could look at this in five years and say it was this weird sort of reenactment of the late 60s. You know, we have, we had the, we had the Elon Musk, SpaceX, you know, rocket takeoff, which was sort of like an homage to, to, uh, Apollo. And then we had these, these riots that, you know, had, or these protests and riots that had a sort of some similarities to the 60s in the, you know, the racial issues, the issues of racial justice engaged, but their effects were less sweeping, their goals were less sweeping. And, and yeah, and just as the, the Musk launch took us back into space, but not to the moon, these protests and riots sort of summoned up a little of the spirit of the 60s, but then things settled down again. Um, but I'm just, I'm hesitant, I'm hesitant Obviously, part of me believes that argument, or I wouldn't have, you know, written this book. But I'm hesitant to make it too forcefully, given, um, you know, I didn't, I certainly didn't see these protests coming. Okay. Um, well, like I said, it's a great book. Uh, you know, there's a ton of. Uh, I, I really, I have to say, I truly am in awe of uh, the r- different realms in which you are conversant in um, thinking, and, and and the number of and the number of little... actually original ideas. Um, yeah. Uh, well, the second part I appreciate. The first part, you know, there's a little bit of columnist oh, you're, flam. You're, of you're faking it. Oh, well, you shouldn't have told me well, that. You know, you know, it's a, it's. I'm not. I'm not faking it. But, but the the vocation of the newspaper columnist is to, you know, is to prevent present oneself as having intense familiarity with every great subject well, that comes along. You do a pretty convincing job, more convincing Good. than some, I might add, and I won't mention names. Uh, but, uh, you, and, and I will say, I think you truly have, uh, one of the very most cerebral regular newspaper columns in America, including for, even for the New York worse. Times, where yours appears. Um, now, uh, the one thing we didn't talk about is your chapter on sterility. You're concerned about the birth rate, but you're, you're certainly doing your part. You've, you've already got four kids, and I know, and apparently you now have to turn, uh, to them, so I guess I'll, let you go. Yes, Congratulations. We have, a, we have a newborn downstairs that I should, that I should. Congratulations on that, uh, on, uh, being a good Catholic and, uh. <laughs> Not sure about that, but, but she well, is. Well, at least in this one respect. Yet, so, yeah. in, this, in this one respect. In the, that's yeah. right. It's, it's, I'll sneak into purgatory. Um, well, yes, but thank you, Bob. It was great. It's been too long. It has um, been. We has should been do this long. again. I'll, I'll I, write another book. Hey, I'm available. I'm not writing a regular column. Uh, so thanks. Good luck with the book, The Decadent Society, 
everybody should read it. And uh, I, I hope we will talk soon. Thanks, Ross. Thanks.